Chapter 8 The Mysterious Carriage That tragic evening was bad for everybody. Carlotta fell ill. As for Christine Daae, she disappeared after the performance. A fortnight elapsed during which she was seen neither at the opera nor outside. Raoul, of course, was the first to be astonished at the prima donna's absence. He wrote to her at Madame Valerius's flat and received no reply. His grief increased, and he ended by being seriously alarmed at never seeing her name on the program. Faust was played without her. One afternoon he went to the manager's office to ask the reason of Christine's disappearance. He found them both looking extremely worried. Their own friends did not recognize them. They had lost all their gaiety and spirits. They were seen crossing the stage with hanging heads, careworn brows, pale cheeks, as though pursued by some abominable thought or a prey to some persistent sport of fate. The fall of the chandelier had involved them in no little responsibility, but it was difficult to make them speak about it. The inquest had ended in a verdict of accidental death, caused by the wear and tear of the chains by which the chandelier was hung from the ceiling. But it was the duty of both the old and the new managers to have discovered this wear and tear and to have remedied it in time. And I feel bound to say that Monsieur Richard and Montcharmin at this time appeared so changed, so absent-minded, so mysterious, so incomprehensible that many of the subscribers thought that some event even more horrible than the fall of the chandelier must have affected their state of mind. In their daily intercourse they showed themselves very impatient, except with Madame Giry, who had been reinstated in her functions. And their reception of the Vicomte de Chagny, when he came to ask about Christine, was anything but cordial. They merely told him that she was taking a holiday. He asked how long the holiday was for, and they replied curtly that it was for an unlimited period, as Mademoiselle Daye had requested leave of absence for reasons of health. Then she is ill, he cried. What is the matter with her? We don't know. Didn't you send the doctor of the opera to see her? No. She did not ask for him, and as we trust her, we took her word. Raoul left the building a prey to the gloomiest thoughts. He resolved, come what might, to go and inquire of Mama Valerius. He remembered the strong phrases in Christine's letter, forbidding him to make any attempt to see her. But what he had seen at Perros, what he had heard behind the dressing-room door, his conversation with Christine at the edge of the moor, made him suspect some machination which, devilish though it might be, was nonetheless human. The girl's highly strung imagination, her affectionate and credulous mind, the primitive education which had surrounded her childhood with a circle of legends, the constant brooding over her dead father, and, above all, the state of sublime ecstasy into which music threw her from the moment that this art was made manifest to her in certain exceptional conditions, as in the churchyard at Perros. All this seemed to him to constitute a moral ground only too favorable for the malevolent designs of some mysterious and unscrupulous person. Of whom was Christine Daae the victim? This was the very reasonable question which Raoul put to himself as he hurried off to Mama Valerius. He trembled as he rang at the little flat in the Rue Notre-Dame-des-Victoires, the door was opened by the maid whom he had seen coming out of Christine's dressing-room one evening. He asked if he could speak to Madame Valerius. He was told that she was ill in bed and was not receiving visitors. "'Take in my card, please,' he said. The maid soon returned and showed him into a small and scantily furnished drawing-room in which portraits of Professor Valerius and old Daye hung on opposite walls. "'Madame begs Monsieur le Vicomte to excuse her,' said the servant. "'She can only see him in her bedroom "'because she can no longer stand on her poor legs.' Five minutes later, Raoul was ushered into an ill-lit room "'where he at once recognized the good, kind face "'of Christine's benefactress in the semi-darkness of an alcove. 
Mama Valerius's hair was now quite white, but her eyes had grown no older, never on the contrary, had their expression been so bright, so pure, so childlike. Monsieur de Chagny, she cried gaily, putting out both her hands to her visitor. Ah, it's heaven that sends you here. We can talk of her. This last sentence sounded very gloomily in the young man's ears. He at once asked, Madame, where is Christine? And the old lady replied calmly, She is with her good genius. What good genius? exclaimed poor Raoul. Why, the angel of music. The vicomte dropped into a chair. Really? Christine was with the angel of music? And there lay Mamma Valerius in bed, smiling to him and putting her finger to her lips to warn him to be silent. And she added, You must not tell anybody. You can rely on me, said Raoul. He hardly knew what he was saying, for his ideas about Christine, already greatly confused, were becoming more and more entangled, and it seemed as if everything was beginning to turn around him, around the room, around that extraordinary good lady with the white hair and forget-me-not eyes. I know, I know I can, she said with a happy laugh. But why don't you come near me as you used to do when you were a little boy? Give me your hands, as when you brought me the story of little Lottie, which Daddy Daye had told you. I am very fond of you, Monsieur Raoul, you know, and so is Christine, too. She is fond of me, sighed the young man. He found a difficulty in collecting his thoughts and bringing them to bear on Mama Valerius's good genius on the angel of music of whom Christine had spoken to him so strangely, on the death's head which he had seen in the sort of nightmare on the high altar at Peros, and also on the phantom whose fame had come to his ears one evening when he was standing behind the scenes within hearing of a group of scene-shifters who were repeating the ghastly description which the hanged man, Joseph Bouquet, had given of the phantom before his mysterious death. He asked in a low voice, "'What makes you think that Christine is fond of me, madame?' "'She used to speak of you every day.' "'Really? And what did she tell you?' "'She told me that you had made her a proposal.' And the good old lady began laughing wholeheartedly. Raoul sprang from his chair, flushing to the temples, suffering agonies. "'What's this? Where are you going?' Sit down again at once, will you? Do you think I will let you go like that? If you're angry with me for laughing, I beg your pardon. After all, what has happened isn't your fault, didn't you know? Did you think that Christine was free? Is Christine engaged to be married? The wretched Raoul asked in a choking voice. Why, no, why, no. You know as well as I do that Christine couldn't marry even if she wanted to. But I don't know anything about it. And why can't Christine marry? Because of the angel of music, of course. I don't follow, madame. Yes, he forbids her to. He forbids her? The angel of music forbids her to marry? Oh, he forbids her without forbidding her. It's like this. He tells her that if she got married... She would never hear him again, that's all, and that he would go away forever. So you understand. She can't let the angel of music go. It's quite natural. Yes, yes, echoed Raoul submissively. It's quite natural. Besides, I thought Christine had told you all that when she met you at Peros, where she went with her good genius. Oh, she went to Peros with her good genius, did she? What well, that is to say, he arranged to meet her down there in Peros churchyard at Daye's grave. He promised to play her the resurrection of Lazarus on her father's violin. Raoul de Chagny rose, and with a very authoritative air, pronounced these peremptory words. Madame, you will have the goodness to tell me where that genius lives. 
The old lady did not seem surprised at this indiscreet command. She raised her eyes and said, In heaven! Such simplicity baffled him. He did not know what to say in the presence of this candid and perfect faith in a genius who came down nightly from heaven to haunt the dressing-rooms at the opera. He now realized the possible state of mind of a girl brought up between a superstitious fiddler and a visionary old lady, and he shuddered when he thought of the consequences of it all. "'Is Christine still a good girl?' he asked suddenly, in spite of himself. "'I swear it as I hope to be saved,' exclaimed the old woman, who this time seemed to be incensed. "'And if you doubt it, sir, I don't know what you're here for.' Raoul tore at his gloves. "'How long has she known this genius?' "'About three months. Yes, it's quite three months since he began to give her lessons.' The vicomte threw up his arms with a gesture of despair. "'The genius gives her lessons. And where, pray?' "'Now that she has gone away with him, I can't say. But up to a fortnight ago it was in Christine's dressing-room. It would be impossible in this little flat. The whole house would hear them. Whereas at the opera, at eight o'clock in the morning, there is no one about, do you see?' "'Yes, I see, I see,' cried the vicomte and he hurriedly took leave of Madame Valerius, who asked herself if this young nobleman was not a little off his head. He walked home to his brother's house in a pitiful state. He could have struck himself, banged his head against the walls, to think that he had believed in her innocence, in her purity. The angel of music! He knew him now, he saw him, it was beyond a doubt some unspeakable tenor, a good-looking idiot who mouthed and simpered as he sang. He thought himself as absurd and as wretched as could be. Oh, what a miserable little insignificant silly young man was Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny, thought Raoul furiously. And she, what a bold and damnably sly creature. His brother was waiting for him, and Raoul fell into his arms like a child. The Count consoled him without asking for explanations, and Raoul would certainly have long hesitated before telling him the story of the Angel of Music. His brother suggested taking him out to dinner. Overcome as he was with despair, Raoul would probably have refused any invitation that evening if the Count had not, as an inducement, told him that the lady of his thoughts had been seen the night before in company of the other sex in the bois. At first the vicomte refused to believe, but he received such exact details that he ceased protesting. She had been seen, it appeared, driving in a carriage with the window down. She seemed to be slowly taking in the icy night air. There was a glorious moon shining. She was recognized beyond a doubt. As for her companion, only his shadowy outline was distinguished leaning back in the dark. The carriage was going at a walking pace in a lonely drive behind the grandstand at Longchamp. Raoul, dressed in frantic haste, prepared to forget his distress by flinging himself, as people say, into the vortex of pleasure. Alas, he was a very sorry guest, and leaving his brother early, found himself by ten o'clock in the evening in a cab behind the Longchamp racecourse. It was bitterly cold. The road seemed deserted and very bright under the moonlight. He told the driver to wait for him patiently at the corner of a near turning, and, hiding himself as well as he could, stood stamping his feet to keep warm. He had been indulging in this healthy exercise for half an hour or so, when a carriage turned the corner of the road and came quietly in his direction at a walking pace. As it approached, he saw that a woman was leaning her head from the window, and suddenly the moon shed a pale gleam over her features. Christine! The sacred name of his love had sprung from his heart and his lips. He could not keep it back. He would have given anything to withdraw it, for that name, proclaimed in the stillness of the night, had acted as though it were the preconcerted signal 
for a furious rush on the part of the driver and the carriage, which dashed past him before he could put into execution his plan of leaping at the horses' heads. The carriage window had been closed, and the girl's face had disappeared, and the carriage, behind which he was now running, was no more than a black spot on the white road. He called out again, Christine! No reply, and he stopped in the midst of the silence. With a lackluster eye, he stared down that cold, desolate road and into the pale, dead night. Nothing was colder than his heart, nothing half so dead. He had loved an angel, and now he despised a woman. Raoul, how that little fairy of the north has trifled with you. Was it really, was it really necessary to have so fresh and young a face, a manner so shy, always ready to cover itself with the pink blush of modesty, in order to pass in the lonely night in a carriage and pair accompanied by a mysterious lover, surely there should be some limit to hypocrisy and lying. She had passed without answering his cry, and he was thinking of dying, and he was twenty years old. His valet found him in the morning sitting on his bed. He had not undressed, and the servant feared at the sight of his face that some disaster had occurred. Raoul snatched his letters from the man's hands. He had recognized Christine's paper and handwriting. She said, Dear, go to the mask ball at the opera on the night after tomorrow. At twelve o'clock, be in the little room behind the fireplace in the grand lobby. Stand near the door that leads to the rotunda. Don't mention disappointment to anyone on earth. Wear a white domino and be carefully masked. As you love me, do not let yourself be recognized. Christine Chapter 9 At the Masked Ball The envelope was covered with mud and unstamped. It bore the words to be handed to Monsieur le Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, with the address in pencil. It must have been flung out in the hope that a passerby would pick up the note and deliver it, which was what had happened. The note had been picked up on the pavement of the Place de l'Opera. Raoul read it over again with fevered eyes. No more was needed to revive his hope. The somber picture which he had for a moment imagined of a Christine forgetting her duty to herself made way for his original conception of an unfortunate innocent child, the victim of imprudence and exaggerated sensibility. To what extent at this time was she really a victim? Whose prisoner was she? Into what whirlpool had she been dragged? He asked himself these questions with a cruel anguish. But even this pain seemed endurable beside the frenzy into which he was thrown at the thought of a lying and deceitful Christine, what had happened? What influence had she undergone? What monster had carried her off? And by what means? By what means, indeed, but that of music? He knew Christine's story. After her father's death, she acquired a distaste for everything in life, including her art. She went through the conservatoire like a poor, soulless singing machine, and suddenly she awoke as though through the intervention of a god. The angel of music appeared upon the scene. She sang Marguerite in Faust and triumphed. The angel of music. For three months the angel of music had been giving Christine lessons. Ah, he was a demanding teacher. And now he was taking her for drives the bois. Raoul's fingers clutched at his flesh above his jealous heart. In his inexperience, he now asked himself with terror what game the girl was playing. Up to what point could an opera singer make a fool of a good-natured young man, quite new to love? Oh, misery! Thus did Raoul's thoughts fly from one extreme to the other. He no longer knew whether to pity Christine or to curse her, and he pitied and cursed her by turns. At all events, he bought a white domino.
The hour of the appointment came at last. With his face in a mask trimmed with long, thick lace, looking like a Pierrot in his white wrap, the Bicant thought himself very ridiculous. Men of the world do not go to the opera ball in fancy dress. It was absurd. One thought, however, consoled him. He would certainly never be recognized. This ball was an exceptional affair, given before Shrovetide, to honor the birthday of a bygone designer of lavish parties, and it was expected to be much gayer, noisier, more bohemian than the ordinary mask ball. Numbers of artists had arranged to go, accompanied by an entourage of models and pupils, who by midnight began to create a tremendous din. Raoul climbed the staircase at five minutes to twelve, did not linger to look at the motley dresses displayed all the way up the marble steps, one of the richest settings in the world, allowed no facetious mask to draw him into a war of wits, replied to no jests, and shook off the bold familiarity of a number of couples who had already become a trifle too gay. Crossing the grand lobby, and escaping from a mad whirl of dancers in which he was caught for a moment, he at last entered the room mentioned in Christine's letter. He found it crammed, for this small space was the point where all those who were going to supper in the rotunda crossed those who were returning from taking a glass of champagne. The fun here waxed fast and furious. Raoul leaned against a doorpost and waited. He did not wait long. A black domino passed and gave a quick squeeze to the tips of his fingers. He understood that it was she and followed her. Is that you, Christine? he asked between his teeth. The black domino turned round promptly and raised her finger to her lips, no doubt to warn him not to mention her name again. Raoul continued to follow her in silence. He was afraid of losing her after meeting her again in such strange circumstances. His grudge against her was gone. He no longer doubted that she had nothing to reproach herself with, however peculiar and inexplicable her conduct might seem. He was ready to make any display of clemency, forgiveness, or cowardice. He was in love. And no doubt he would soon receive a very natural explanation of her curious absence. The black domino turned back from time to time, to see if the white domino were still following. As Raoul once more passed through the lobby, this time in the wake of his guide, he could not help noticing a group crowding around a person whose disguise, eccentric air, and gruesome appearance were causing a sensation. It was a man dressed all in scarlet, with a huge hat and feathers on top of a wonderful death's head. From his shoulders hung an immense red velvet cloak which trailed along the floor like a king's train, and on this cloak was embroidered in gold letters, which everyone read and repeated aloud, Don't touch me. I am Red Death stalking abroad. Then one, greatly daring, did try to touch him, but a skeleton hand shot out of a crimson sleeve and violently seized the rash one's wrist, and he, feeling the clutch of the knuckle-bones, the furious grasp of death, uttered a cry of pain and terror. When Red Death released him at last, he ran away like a very madman, pursued by the jeers of the bystanders. It was at this moment that Raoul passed in front of the funereal masquerader, who had just happened to turn in his direction, and he nearly exclaimed, The Death's Head of Peros Girek! He had recognized him. He wanted to dart forward, forgetting Christine, but the black domino, who also seemed a prey to some strange excitement, caught him by the arm and dragged him from the lobby, far from the mad crowd through which Red Death was stalking. The black domino kept on turning back and apparently, on two occasions, saw something that startled her, for she hurried her pace and rowels as though they were being pursued. They went up two floors. Here the stairs and corridors were almost deserted. The black domino opened the door of a private box and beckoned to the white domino to follow her. Then Christine, 
whom he recognized by the sound of her voice, closed the door behind them and warned him in a whisper to remain at the back of the box and on no account to show himself. Raoul took off his mask. Christine kept hers on, and when Raoul was about to ask her to remove it, he was surprised to see her put her ear to the petition and listen eagerly for a sound outside. Then she opened the door ajar, looked out into the corridor, and in a low voice said, He must have gone higher. Suddenly she exclaimed, He is coming down again. She tried to close the door, but Raoul prevented her, for he had seen on the top step of the staircase that led to the floor above a red foot, followed by another, and slowly, majestically, the whole scarlet dress of red death met his eyes, and he once more saw the death's head of Peros Girek. "'It's he!' he exclaimed. "'This time he shall not escape me!' But Christine had slammed the door at the moment when Raoul was on the point of rushing out. He tried to push her aside. "'Whom do you mean by he?' she asked in a changed voice. "'Who shall not escape you?' Raoul tried to overcome the girl's resistance by force, but she repelled him with a strength which he would not have suspected in her. He understood, or thought he understood, and at once lost his temper. "'Who?' he repeated angrily. "'Why, he, the man who hides behind that hideous mask of death, "'the evil genius of the churchyard at Poros. "'Red death, in a word, madam, your friend, your angel of music. "'But I shall snatch off his mask as I shall snatch off my own, "'and this time we shall see each other in the face, "'he and I, with no veil and no lies between us.' and I shall know whom you love and who loves you. He burst into a mad laugh, while Christine gave a disconsolate moan behind her velvet mask. With a tragic gesture, she flung out her two arms, which fixed a barrier of white flesh against the door. In the name of our love, Raoul, you shall not pass. He stopped. What had she said? In the name of their love? Never before had she confessed that she loved him, and yet she had had opportunities enough. No, her only object was to gain a few seconds. She wished to give the Red Death time to escape, and in accents of childish hatred he said, You lie, madame, for you do not love me, and you have never loved me. What a poor fellow I must be to let you mock and flout me as you have done. Why did you give me every reason for hope at Peros? For honest hope, madame, for I am an honest man, and I believed you to be an honest woman, when your only intention was to deceive me. Alas, you have deceived us all. You have taken a shameful advantage of the candid affection of your benefactress herself, who continues to believe in your sincerity, while you go about the opera ball with red death. I despise you. And he burst into tears. She allowed him to insult her. She thought of but one thing to keep him from leaving the box. You will beg my pardon one day for all those ugly words, Raoul, and when you do, I shall forgive you. He shook his head. No, no, you have driven me mad. When I think that I had only one object in life to give my name to an opera wench. Raoul, how can you? I shall die of shame. No, dear, live, said Christine's grave and changed voice. And goodbye. Goodbye, Raoul. The boy stepped forward, staggering as he went. He risked one more sarcasm. Oh, you must let me come and applaud you from time to time. I shall never sing again, Raoul. Really, he replied, still more satirically. So he is taking you off the stage. I congratulate you. But we shall meet in the Bois one of these evenings. Not in the Bois, nor anywhere, Raoul. You shall not see me again. May one ask at least to what darkness you are returning? For what hell are you leaving, mysterious lady? Or for what paradise? I came to tell you, dear but I can't tell you now. You would not believe me. You have lost faith in me, Raoul. 
It is finished. She spoke in such a despairing voice that the lad began to feel remorse for his cruelty. But look here, he cried, can't you tell me what all this means? You are free, there is no one to interfere with you. You go about Paris, you put on a domino to come to the ball. Why do you not go home? What have you been doing this past fortnight? What is this tale about the angel of music which you have been telling Mama Valerius? Someone may have taken you in, played upon your innocence. I was a witness of it myself at Perros. But you know what to believe now. You seem to be quite sensible, Christine. You know what you are doing. And meanwhile, Madame Valerius lies waiting for you at home and appealing to your good genius. Explain yourself, Christine, I beg of you. Anyone might have been deceived as I was. What is this farce? Christine simply took off her mask and said, Dear, it is a tragedy. Raoul now saw her face and could not restrain an exclamation of surprise and terror. The fresh complexion of former days was gone. A mortal pallor covered those features which he had known so charming and so gentle, and sorrow had furrowed them with pitiless lines and traced dark and unspeakably sad shadows under her eyes. "'My dearest, my dearest,' he moaned, holding out his arms. "'You promised to forgive me.' "'Perhaps, some day, perhaps,' she said, resuming her mask. And she went away, forbidding him with a gesture to follow her. He tried to disobey her, but she turned round and repeated her gesture of farewell with such authority that he dared not move a step. He watched her till she was out of sight. Then he also went down among the crowd, hardly knowing what he was doing, with throbbing temples and an aching heart. And as he crossed the dancing floor, he asked if anybody had seen Red Death. Yes, everyone had seen Red Death. But Raoul could not find him, and at two o'clock in the morning he turned down the passage behind the scenes that led to Christine Daae's dressing room. His footsteps took him to that room where he had first known suffering. He tapped at the door. There was no answer. He entered as he had entered when he looked everywhere for the man's voice. The room was empty. A gas jet was burning, turned down low. He saw some writing paper on a little desk. He thought of writing to Christine, but he heard steps in the passage. He had only time to hide in the inner room, which was separated from the dressing room by a curtain. Christine entered, took off her mask with a weary movement, and flung it on the table. She sighed and let her pretty head fall into her two hands. What was she thinking of, of Raoul? No, for Raoul heard her murmur, Poor Eric! At first he thought he must be mistaken. To begin with, he was persuaded that if anyone was to be pitied, it was he, Raoul. It would have been quite natural if she had said, Poor Raoul, after what had happened between them. But shaking her head, she repeated, Poor Eric. What had this Eric to do with Christine's sighs? And why was she pitying Eric when Raoul was so unhappy? Christine began to write deliberately, calmly, and so placidly that Raoul, who was still trembling from the effects of the tragedy that separated them, was painfully impressed. What coolness, he said to himself. She wrote on, filling two, three, four sheets. Suddenly she raised her head and hid the sheets in her bodice. She seemed to be listening. Raoul also listened. Whence came that strange sound, that distant rhythm. A faint singing seemed to issue from the walls. Yes, it was as though the walls themselves were singing. The song became plainer. The words were now distinguishable. He heard a voice, a very beautiful, very soft, very captivating voice. But for all its softness, it remained a male voice. The voice came nearer and nearer. It came through the wall. It approached and now the voice was in the room in front of Christine. Christine rose and addressed the voice 
as though speaking to someone. Here I am, Eric, she said. I am ready, but you are late. Raoul, peeping from behind the curtain, could not believe his eyes, which showed him nothing. Christine's face lit up. A smile of happiness appeared upon her bloodless lips, a smile like that of sick people when they receive the first hope of recovery. The voice without a body went on singing, and certainly Raoul had never in his life heard anything more absolutely and heroically sweet, more gloriously insidious, more delicate, more powerful, in short, more irresistibly triumphant. He listened to it in a fever, and he now began to understand how Christine Daillet was able to appear one evening before the stupefied audience with accents of a beauty hitherto unknown, of a superhuman exaltation, while doubtless still under the influence of the mysterious and invisible master. The voice was singing the wedding night song from Romeo and Juliet. Raoul saw Christine stretch out her arms to the voice, as she had done in Perrault's churchyard to the invisible violin playing the resurrection of Lazarus. And nothing could describe the passion with which the voice sang, Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. The strains went through Raoul's heart. Struggling against the charm that seemed to deprive him of all his will and all his energy and of almost all his lucidity at the moment when he needed them most, he succeeded in drawing back the curtain that hid him, and he walked to where Christine stood. She herself was moving to the back of the room, the whole wall of which was occupied by a great mirror that reflected her image, but not his, for he was just behind her and entirely covered by her. Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. Christine walked toward her image in the glass, and the image came toward her. The two Christines, the real one and the reflection, ended by touching, and Raoul put out his arms to clasp the two in one embrace. But by a sort of dazzling miracle that sent him staggering, Raoul was suddenly flung back while an icy blast swept over his face. He saw not two, but four, eight, twenty Christines spinning around him, laughing at him, and fleeing so swiftly that he could not touch one of them. At last everything stood still again, and he saw himself in the glass. But Christine had disappeared. He rushed up to the glass. He struck at the walls. Nobody. And meanwhile the room still echoed with a distant, passionate singing, Fate links thee to me for ever and a day. Which way, which way had Christine gone? Which way would she return? Would she return? Alas, had she not declared to him that everything was finished? And was the voice not repeating, Fate links thee to me for ever and a day? To me? To whom? Then worn out, beaten, his brain in a whirl, he sat down on the chair which Christine had just left. Like her, he let his head fall into his hands. When he raised it, the tears were streaming down his young cheeks, real, heavy tears, like those which jealous children shed, tears that wept for a sorrow which was in no way fanciful, but which is common to all the lovers on earth, and which he expressed aloud. Who is this Eric? he said. Chapter 10 Forget the Name of the Man's Voice the day after Christine had vanished before his eyes, in a sort of dazzlement that still made him doubt the evidence of his senses, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny called to inquire at Madame Valerius. He came upon a charming picture. Christine herself was seated by the bedside of the old lady, who was sitting up against the pillows, knitting. The pink and white had returned to the young girl's cheeks, the dark rings around her eyes had disappeared. Raoul no longer recognized the tragic face of the day before. If the veil of melancholy over those adorable features had not still appeared to the young man as the last trace of the weird drama 
in whose toils that mysterious child was struggling, he could have believed that Christine was not its heroine at all. She rose without showing any emotion and offered him her hand. But Raoul's stupefaction was so great that he stood there dumbfounded, without a gesture, without a word. "'Well, Monsieur de Chagny,' exclaimed Madame Valerius, "'don't you know our Christine? Her good genius has sent her back to us.' Mamma, the girl broke in promptly, while a deep blush mounted to her eyes. "'I, I thought, Mamma, that there would be no more question of that. You know there is no such thing as the angel of music. But, child, he gave you lessons for three months. Mamma, I have promised to explain everything to you one of these days, and I hope to do so. But you have promised me until that day to be silent and to ask me no more questions whatever. Provided that you promised never to leave me again, but have you promised that, Christine? Mamma, all this cannot interest Monsieur de Chagny. On the contrary, mademoiselle, said the young man in a voice which he tried to make firm and brave, but which still trembled. Anything that concerns you interests me to an extent which perhaps you will one day understand. I do not deny that my surprise equals my pleasure at finding you with your adopted mother, and that after what happened between us yesterday, after what you said and what I was able to guess, I hardly expected to see you here so soon. I should be the first to delight at your return if you were not so bent on preserving a secrecy that may be fatal to you. And I have been your friend too long not to be alarmed with Madame Valerius at a disastrous adventure which will remain dangerous so long as we have not unraveled its threads, and of which you will certainly end by being the victim, Christine. At these words, Madame Valerius tossed about in her bed. What does this mean, she cried. Is Christine in danger? Yes, Madame, said Raoul courageously, notwithstanding the signs which Christine made to him. My God, exclaimed the good, simple old woman, gasping for breath. You must tell me everything, Christine. Why did you try to reassure me? And what danger is it, Monsieur de Chagny? An impostor is abusing her good faith. Is the angel of music an impostor? She told you herself that there is no angel of music. But then what is it in heaven's name? You will be the death of me. There is a terrible mystery around us, madame, around you, around Christine, a mystery much more to be feared than any number of phantoms or genie. Madame Valerius turned a terrified face to Christine, who had already run to her adopted mother and was holding her in her arms. Don't believe him, mummy, don't believe him, she repeated. Then tell me that you will never leave me again, implored the widow. Christine was silent, and Raoul resumed. That is what you must promise, Christine. It is the only thing that can reassure your mother and me. We will undertake not to ask you a single question about the past if you promise us to remain under our protection in the future. That is an undertaking which I have not asked of you and a promise which I refuse to make to you, said the young girl haughtily. I am mistress of my own actions, Monsieur de Chagny. You have no right to control them, and I beg you to desist henceforth. As to what I have done during the past fortnight, there is only one man in the world who would have the right to demand an account of me, my husband. Well, I have no husband, and I never mean to marry. She threw out her hands to emphasize her words, and Raoul turned pale, not only because of the words which he had heard, but because he had caught sight of a plain gold ring on Christine's finger. You have no husband, and yet you wear a wedding ring. He tried to seize her hand, but she swiftly drew it back. That's a present, she said, blushing once more and vainly trying to hide her embarrassment. Christine, as you have no husband, that ring can only have been given by one who hopes to make you his wife. Why deceive us further? 
Why torture me still more? That ring is a promise, and that promise has been accepted. That's what I said, exclaimed the old lady. And what did she answer, madame? What I chose, said Christine, driven to exasperation. Don't you think, monsieur, that this cross-examination has lasted long enough? As far as I'm concerned... Raoul was afraid to let her finish her speech. He interrupted her. I beg your pardon for speaking as I did, mademoiselle. You know the good intentions that make me meddle just now in matters which you no doubt think have nothing to do with me. But allow me to tell you what I have seen, and I have seen more than you suspect, Christine, or what I thought I saw, for to tell you the truth, I have sometimes been inclined to doubt the evidence of my eyes. Well, what did you see, sir, or think you saw? I saw your ecstasy at the sound of the voice, Christine. The voice that came from the wall or the room next to yours. Yes, your ecstasy. And that is what makes me alarmed on your behalf. You're under a very dangerous spell. And yet it seems that you're aware of the imposture because you say today that there is no angel of music. In that case, Christine, why did you follow him that time? Why did you stand up with radiant features, as though you were really hearing angels? Oh, it is a very dangerous voice, Christine, for I myself, when I heard it, was so much fascinated by it that you vanished before my eyes without my seeing which way you had passed. Christine, Christine, in the name of heaven, in the name of your Father, who is in heaven now, and who loved you so dearly, and who loved me too, Christine, tell us, tell your benefactress and me, to whom does that voice belong? If you do, we will save you in spite of yourself. Come, Christine, the name of the man, the name of the man who had the audacity to put a ring on your finger. Monsieur de Chagny, the girl declared coldly, you shall never know. Thereupon, seeing the hostility with which her ward had addressed the vicomte, Mamma Valerius suddenly took Christine's part. And if she does love that man, Monsieur le vicomte, even then it is no business of yours. Alas, madame, Raoul humbly replied, unable to restrain his tears, alas, I believe that Christine really does love him. But it is not only that which drives me to despair, for what I am not certain of, madame, is that the man whom Christine loves is worthy of her love. It is for me to be a judge of that, monsieur, said Christine, looking Raoul angrily in the face. When a man, continued Raoul, adopts such romantic methods to entice a young girl's affections, the man must be either a villain or the girl a fool, is that it? Christine! Raoul, why do you condemn a man whom you have never seen, whom no one knows, and about whom you yourself know nothing? Yes, yes, Christine, I at least know the name that you thought to keep from me forever. The name of your angel of music, Mademoiselle, is Eric. Christine at once betrayed herself. She turned as white as a sheet and stammered, Who told you? You yourself. How do you mean? By pitying him the other night, the night of the mask ball. When you went to your dressing room, did you not say, Poor Eric? Well, Christine, there was a poor Raoul who overheard you. This is the second time that you have listened behind the door, Monsieur de Changy. I was not behind the door. I was in the dressing room, in the inner room, mademoiselle. Oh, unhappy man, moaned the girl, showing every sign of unspeakable terror. Unhappy man, do you want to be killed? Perhaps. Raoul uttered this perhaps with so much love and despair in his voice that Christine could not keep back a sob. She took his hands and looked at him with all the pure affection of which she was capable. Raoul, she said, forget the man's voice, and do not even remember its name. You must never try to fathom the mystery of the man's voice. 
Is the mystery so very terrible? There is no more awful mystery on this earth. Swear to me that you will make no attempt to find out, she insisted. Swear to me that you will never come to my dressing room unless I send for you. Then you promise to send for me sometimes, Christine. I promise. When? Tomorrow. Then I swear to do as you ask. He kissed her hands and went away, cursing Eric and resolving to be patient. Chapter 11 Above the Trap Doors The next day he saw her at the opera. She was still wearing the plain gold ring. She was gentle and kind to him. She talked to him of the plans which he was forming, of his future, of his career. He told her that the date of the polar expedition had been put forward, and that he would leave France in three weeks or a month at latest. She suggested almost gaily that he must look upon the voyage with delight as a stage toward his coming fame. And when he replied that fame without love was no attraction in his eyes, she treated him as a child whose sorrows were only short-lived. "'How can you, Christine, speak so lightly of such serious things?' he asked. "'Perhaps we shall never see each other again. I may die during that expedition.' "'Or I,' she said simply. She no longer smiled or jested. She seemed to be thinking of some new thing that had entered her mind for the first time. Her eyes were all aglow with it. "'What are you thinking of, Christine?' "'I am thinking that we shall not see each other again. "'And does that make you so radiant? "'And that in a month we shall have to say good-bye forever?' Unless, Christine, we pledge our faith and wait for each other forever. She put her hand to his mouth. No, hush, Raoul. You know there is no question of that, and we shall never be married. That is understood. She seemed suddenly almost unable to contain an overpowering gaiety. She clapped her hands with childish glee. Raoul stared at her in amazement. But, but, she continued, holding out her two hands to Raoul, or rather giving them to him, as though she had suddenly resolved to make him a present of them, but if we cannot be married, we can, we can be engaged. Nobody will know but ourselves, Raoul. There have been plenty of secret marriages. Why not a secret engagement? We are engaged, dear, for a month. In a month you will go away, and I can be happy at the thought of that month all my life long. She was enchanted with her inspiration. Then she became serious again. This, she said, is a happiness that will harm no one. Raoul jumped at the idea. He bowed to Christine and said, Mademoiselle, I have the honor to ask for your hand. Why, you have both of them already, my dear betrothed. And, Raoul, how happy we shall be. We must play at being engaged all day long. It was the prettiest game in the world, and they enjoyed it like the children that they were. Oh, the wonderful speeches they made to each other and the eternal vows they exchanged. They played at hearts as other children might play at ball only as it was really their two hearts that they flung to and fro, they had to be very, very handy to catch them each time without hurting them. One day, about a week after the game began, Raoul's heart was badly hurt, and he stopped playing and uttered these wild words, I shan't go to the North Pole. Christine, who in her innocence had not dreamed of such a possibility, suddenly discovered the danger of the game and reproached herself bitterly. She did not say a word in reply to Raoul's remark and went straight home. This happened in the afternoon in the singer's dressing room, where they met every day and where they amused themselves by dining on three biscuits, two glasses of port, and a bunch of violets. In the evening she did not sing, and he did not receive his usual letter, though they had arranged to write to each other daily during that month. The next morning 
he ran off to Mama Valerius, who told him that Christine had gone away for two days. She had left at five o'clock the day before. Raoul was distracted. He hated Mama Valerius for giving him such news as that with such stupefying calmness. He tried to sound her, but the old lady obviously knew nothing. Christine returned on the following day. She returned in triumph. She renewed her extraordinary success of the gala performance. Since the adventure of the toad, Carlotta had not been able to appear on the stage. The terror of a fresh quack filled her heart and deprived her of all her power of singing, and the theatre that had witnessed her incomprehensible disgrace had become odious to her. She contrived to cancel her contract. Daae was offered the vacant place for the time. She received thunders of applause in the Juif. The vicomte, who of course was present, was the only one to suffer on hearing the thousand echoes of this fresh triumph for Christine still wore her plain gold ring. A distant voice whispered in the young man's ear, She is wearing the ring again tonight, and you did not give it to her. She gave her soul again tonight, and did not give it to you. If she will not tell you what she has been doing the past two days, you must go and ask Eric. He ran behind the scenes and placed himself in her way. She saw him, for her eyes were looking for him, she said, Quick, quick, come, and she dragged him to her dressing-room. Raoul at once threw himself on his knees before her. He swore to her that he would go and entreated her never again to withhold a single hour of the ideal happiness which she had promised him. She let her tears flow. They kissed like a despairing brother and sister who had been smitten with a common loss and who meet to mourn a dead parent. Suddenly she snatched herself from the young man's soft and timid embrace, seemed to listen to something, and with a quick gesture pointed to the door. When he was on the threshold, she said in so low a voice that the vicomte guessed rather than heard her words, "'Tomorrow, my dear beloved, and be happy, Raoul, I sang for you tonight.' He returned the next day, but those two days of absence had broken the charm of their delightful make-believe. They looked at each other in the dressing-room with their sad eyes without exchanging a word. Raoul had to restrain himself not to cry out, I am jealous, I am jealous, I am jealous. And she heard him all the same. Then she said, Come for a walk, dear. The air will do you good. Raoul thought that she would propose a stroll in the country, far from that building which he detested as a prison whose jailer he could feel walking within the walls, the jailer Eric. But she took him to the stage and made him sit on the wooden curb of a well in the doubtful peace and coolness of a first scene set for the evening's performance. On another day, she wandered with him hand in hand along the deserted paths of a garden whose creepers had been cut out by a decorator's skillful hands. It was as though the real sky, the real flowers, the real earth were forbidden her for all time, and she condemned to breathe no other air than that of the theater. An occasional fireman passed, watching over their melancholy idol from afar, and she would drag him up above the clouds in the magnificent disorder of the grid, where she loved to make him giddy by running in front of him along the frail bridges, among the thousands of ropes fastened to their pulleys, the windlasses, the rollers, in the midst of a regular forest of yards and masts. If he hesitated, she said with an adorable pout of her lips, You, a sailor! And then they returned to terra firma, that is to say, to some passage that led them to the little girls' dancing school, where brats between six and ten were practicing their steps in the hope of becoming great dancers one day, covered with diamonds. Meanwhile, Christine gave them sweets instead. She took him to the wardrobe and property rooms, took him all over her empire, which was artificial but immense, covering seventeen stories from the ground floor to the roof, 
and inhabited by an army of subjects. She moved among them like a popular queen, encouraging them in their labors, sitting down in the workshops, giving words of advice to the workmen whose hands hesitated to cut into the rich stuffs that were to clothe heroes. There were inhabitants of that country who practiced every trade. There were cobblers, there were goldsmiths. All had learned to know her and to love her, for she always interested herself in all their troubles and all their little hobbies. She knew unsuspected corners that were secretly occupied by little old couples. She knocked at their door and introduced Raoul to them as a Prince Charming, who had asked for her hand. And the two of them, sitting on some worm-eaten property, would listen to the legends of the opera even as, in their childhood, they had listened to the old Breton tales. Those old people remembered nothing outside the opera. They had lived there for years without number. Past managers had forgotten them. Palace revolutions had taken no notice of them. The history of France had run its course unknown to them, and nobody recollected their existence. The precious days sped in this way, and Raoul and Christine, by affecting excessive interest in outside matters, strove awkwardly to hide from each other the one thought of their hearts. One fact was certain, that Christine, who until then had shown herself the stronger of the two, became suddenly inexpressibly nervous. When, on their expeditions, she would start running without reason or else suddenly stop, and her hand, turning ice-cold in a moment, would hold the young man back. Sometimes her eyes seemed to pursue imaginary shadows. She cried, This way, and this way, and this way, laughing a breathless laugh that often ended in tears. Then Raoul tried to speak, to question her, in spite of his promises. But even before he had worded his question, she answered feverishly, Nothing. I swear it is nothing. Once, when they were passing before an open trapdoor on the stage, Raoul stopped over the dark cavity. You have shown me over the upper part of your empire, Christine, but there are strange stories told of the lower part. Shall we go down? She caught him in her arms, as though she feared to see him disappear down the black hole, and in a trembling voice whispered, Never! I will not have you go there. Besides, it's not mine. Everything that is underground belongs to him. Raoul looked her in the eyes and said roughly, So he lives down there, does he? I never said so. Who told you a thing like that? Come away. I sometimes wonder if you are quite sane, Raoul. You always take things in such an impossible way. Come along, come. And she literally dragged him away, for he was obstinate and wanted to remain by the trapdoor. That darkness attracted him. Suddenly the trapdoor was closed and so quickly that they did not even see the hand that worked it, and they remained quite dazed. Perhaps he was there, Raoul said at last. She shrugged her shoulders but did not seem easy. Uh, no, no, it was the trap-door shutters. They must do something, you know. They open and shut the trap-doors without any particular reason. It's like the door shutters. They must spend their time somehow. But suppose, Christine, it were he. No, no, he has shut himself up. He is working. Oh, really? He's working, is he? Yes, he can't open and shut the trap doors and work at the same time. She shivered. What is he working at? Oh, something terrible. But it's all the better for us. When he's working at that, he sees nothing. He does not eat, drink, or breathe for days and nights at a time. He becomes a living dead man and has no time to amuse himself with the trap-doors. She shivered again. She was still holding him in her arms. Then she sighed and said in her turn, Suppose it were he. Are you afraid of him, Christine? No. No, of course not, she said. For all that on the next day and the following days, Christine was careful to avoid the trap-doors. 
Her agitation only increased as the hours passed. At last, one afternoon, she arrived very late with her face so desperately pale and her eyes so desperately red that Raoul resolved to go to all lengths, including that which he had foreshadowed when he blurted out that he would not go on the North Pole expedition unless she first told him the secret of the man's name. Hush, hush, in heaven's name! Suppose he heard you, you unfortunate Raoul! And Christine's eyes stared wildly at everything around her. I will remove you from his power, Christine, I swear it, and you shall not think of him any more. Is it possible? She allowed herself this doubt, which was an encouragement, while dragging the young man up to the topmost floor of the theatre, far, very far from the trapdoors. I shall hide you in some unknown corner of the world where he cannot come to look for you. You will be safe, and then I shall go away, as you have sworn never to marry. Christine seized Raoul's hands and squeezed them with incredible rapture. But suddenly becoming alarmed again, she turned away her head. Higher, was all she said, higher still. And she dragged him up toward the summit. He had difficulty in following her. They were soon under the very roof in the maze of timber work. They slipped through the buttresses, the rafters, the joists. They ran from beam to beam as they might have run from tree to tree in a forest. And despite the care which she took to look behind her at every moment, she failed to see a shadow which followed her like her own shadow, which stopped when she stopped, which started again when she did and which made no more noise than a well-conducted shadow should. As for Raoul, he saw nothing either, for when he had Christine in front of him, nothing interested him that happened behind.